Hi, and welcome to episode one of The Last Palabra, my attempt at capturing and dumping the flow of information in and out of my head for you all to listen to. Today, we'll be talking about why I started a podcast, Gary Vee, Casey Neistat, and Joe Rogan, as well as Trump's attempt to buy Greenland and some pretty cool things happening in MMA, as well as the British round of MotoGP, and some big news in TV and movies. At least that's the plan. It's episode one, and I'm not entirely sure where we're heading. So make yourself comfortable, and good luck. Thanks for tuning in to what will hopefully be the first of many auditory brain dumps as I take you on a journey of sound through what's going on in my head and in my life. I'd like to start this week's episode by talking a little bit about why I decided to do a podcast and then follow on with some of the things going on in and around the world and my world. For some years, I've been going on about starting a vlog. I'm going to do a vlog. I'm going to film a vlog. I kept telling my wife, Patchy, that I was going to do it this week. This week, I'll film a vlog, but I didn't. I don't know why I got so set on, on vlogging. Uh, I became a fan of YouTuber Casey Neistat, and I guess like quite a lot of other people, I decided I'd start vlogging. Casey makes it look so easy. He goes out in his awesome and interesting life in New York and films a day of content, edits it, and uploads it every damn day. I saw that and I thought, hey, I can make videos. That's what I do. All I have to do is film myself going on about my life, talking to my camera, just like Casey, edit it and upload it. Exactly like Casey Neistat does. Easy, right? Wrong. I started my interesting day in Barcelona and by 8.20am, I'm on a pat metro, sweating with nothing to point my camera at except the person who's basically stood on top of me, playing Candy Crush on his phone. By 9.30, I'm at work, sitting at my desk, and again, nothing to point my camera at but the computer screen in front of me. Damn. And that's it really until about 6pm when I'm back being stood on in the metro on my way home, where I crash in front of Netflix, and nobody wants to watch me watch Netflix. And so that's that. The vlogging idea, Casey, as much as I love it, as much as I want to just keep shooting and uploading, is out. Podcasting, however, now that's something that's been floating around my brain for some time. I've always been a fan of the medium, I like talking, and I'm a known waffler. I've produced radio, recorded voiceovers, and I have the basic audio gear to get going, so why not? That was in 2011. Oh, how I wish I'd started a podcast in 2011, when the sea was so much calmer. Now the podcast ocean is filled with Joe Rogan cruise liners and Tim Ferriss yachts, and I'm just an overweight kid in half-inflated armbands. But hey, the seeds were there. Then last week, a colleague from work, uh, Moto2, Moto3, Moto E commentator, Matt Dern, was talking to me about Gary Vaynerchuk. Now, I know Gary Vaynerchuk. He's better known from generally being on the internet. The guy's everywhere. And rightly so. He's a content producing powerhouse. And so I was chatting with Matt about Gary V's content plan. He has this idea where he creates what he calls pillar content. So that'll be like his his weekly keynotes or, or the big videos or the big podcasts that he does. And then he creates what he calls micro content, uh, which are kind of like smaller chopped up bits of that, that big one. So it turns out Matt's a mega Gary Vee fan. And so I asked him if, he, if he's read any of the Gary Vee books. And it turns out he has. He actually has one of them, the last one, which is called Crushing It with an exclamation mark. That's Crushing It. Uh, and Matt lent me that book. So I had a weekend off, and I spent most of my time in the sun reading Gary Vaynerchuk's Crushing It. 
Now, there's some key information you need to know if you're going to read Crushing It with the exclamation mark. Ten years previous, Gary Vaynerchuk wrote Crush It, also with an exclamation mark. Uh, And this information is vital because in Crushing It, not Crush It, Gary references the last book a lot. And I mean a lot. Uh, The book is like 50% people talking about the success they had because of the original Crush It book. Like, almost every success story in the book is about a guy or girl who's down on the look. Uh, There's some kind of story, like their mum is ill, they've dropped out of college, they've lost or quit their job, and they've got like $6.23 in their pocket, and they're not sure how they're going to feed their kid, right? Then, as if from nowhere, they discover this book, Crush It! Exclamation mark. Uh, by this Gary Vaynerchuk guy. And reading that book turns their life around as they become mega successful blogger, vlogger, Instagrammer, YouTuber, influencer, success sensation. So like 50% of crushing it, 50% of this damn book, is just it's just testimonials for his other book. So I'm reading the book, and I'm not going to lie, when I started, I thought I was reading Crush It, not crushing it. In fact, I didn't know there were two books. And so I was reading Crushing It, and then all these people are talking about this book, Crush It, and I'm like, well, how, how have they read that to them being this book? I figured it out. There's two books. Crush It, 10 years later, Crushing It. I read the, the later one. Um, damn, Gary, you got me. <laughs> but I totally bought into it. I was like, well, if this guy dropped out of high school with his, 20, his $6.23 and he can do it, then why can't I do it? And the same thing happens to me when I watch Gary Vee's videos. I start off like kind of skeptical of the guy, thinking he's really arrogant, like stop with all this hustle, let people enjoy their lives, whatever. And by the end of it, I find myself totally inspired and agreeing with him. Yeah, Gary. Fortunately, uh, the other 50% of the book, which isn't testimonials to his other book, Crush It, is legit advice from Gary Vee, as well as inspiring words and a breakdown of the lessons that can be learned from this person's story. Honestly, the book's pretty decent. Like, give it a go, but you should probably recrush it first. And I should know at this point that I ordered the other book. Uh, I need to know what I'm missing out on, especially after I've spent a whole weekend reading about these other people who read it and turned their lives around. So there I was thinking, well, I need myself a Gary V side hustle. Maybe I should go back to that vlogging YouTuber idea, kind of like that. Maybe I should try a podcast or something. I don't know. But I've got to do something. Gary needs me to do something, so he'll have someone to write about in 10 years' time in his next book, which will be called, like, I don't know, Crushing Everything, with an exclamation mark, of course. Uh, It will be about people that were inspired by crushing it, who were inspired by Crush It. So, I finished the book, and um, as is typical with me, especially on my kind of weekends off, I was lying by a pool in the sun, it's like, I need another book to go to. And my brother's girlfriend lent me uh, Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Haig. And it's a nice little book. In fact, it's a little book. It's kind of almost square-shaped. And the whole thing is a bit like a BuzzFeed article. So it's kind of like one page is like an ode to nervousness. The next page is like 10 ways you can go shopping without getting stressed out. Or 10 survival tips for being on the internet. And it's good. It's really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Um... It's about how we're living in a time that's not really geared around making life comfortable for humans in general, uh, but even more so for people that are of a a more nervous disposition. And Matt Haig, if you don't know, suffers from anxiety and has suffered suicidal moments and breakdowns in the past. Uh, If you didn't know that, he mentions it a lot in the book. Generally, I've followed this guy on Twitter for a while. I kind of knew his story. Um... 
and I, the book's been on my on my to read list as well as uh, his other book, which is called Reasons to Stay Alive, which again deals with a lot of the um, sort of suffering with anxiety and depression and and suicide. Now, his book is really honest, and I feel like it's written for himself. It's fun with little commentaries on the world. Like I said, there's kind of like top 10 list and stuff, as well as little hypothetical what's ifs, um, ways to cope with things like the news, that was a big one, and social media. He talks about those a lot. He's very critical of those. Uh, and just ways that we, not the world can be better, but the ways that we can be all better in the world, if that makes sense. So I've been reading a lot lately about what a mess the world is becoming due to social media and the internet. How from things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, just to the general overwhelming demand uh, of of so many inputs that the internet puts on you and technology puts on our brain. And Matt Haig's book really touches on this. He talks about how a typical anxious mind is already buzzing with the various amounts of input the world presents, uh, whether it's like a high street full of people, vehicles, signs, noises, lights, clothes, products, etc. Or maybe we're on a website trying to read um, whilst the TV blares in the background and our phones vibrate with notifications and and in, on top of all the other things, you know, the rest of the world continuing like it always has. Um, in fact, I've been reading lately that the simple task of reading a web page is stressful enough for our feeble human brains. Little do we know, but we're all the time making unconscious decisions when we read hypertext, you know, like a web page text. Uh, let's think about Wikipedia page, for example. Harmless enough, right? Wikipedia, loads of info, easily digestible, great. But actually, I challenge you to read a Wikipedia page and then like half an hour later, just would try and recall anything from it. And it's not that easy. Why? Because our brains are apparently so overloaded with stimuli. Uh, when we're on the computer or our phones, we could easily, at any minute, click away from that web page. Uh, just to see if we've got any like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram notifications. Uh, maybe I've got an email. I'll just check. And that's it. You're distracted. If you decide not to do that, your brain or you are making a, a conscious or unconscious decision to not do that. Because that, that call is kind of already always there. Like, oh, I might have an email. Oh, I might have a Facebook notification. No, no, I'll keep reading this. Um, just talking about it. I bet you you're thinking about checking your notifications now. Overcome that urge, but that's a that's a conscious decision. That's a, or even if it's not a conscious decision, it's a decision you're putting on your brain to not look away. Um, and then on top of that, the text on the Wikipedia page is overwhelming. Every other sentence, there's a link to another Wikipedia page. Great, you think more information, more information pouring into our brain so fast we can barely process it. If you decide to click it, that is. If you don't, your brain is still wrestling with the decision of whether to click it or not, just like it's still wrestling with whether to look at you've got a notification or not. And that's just another process going on in your brain as you're trying to read uh, and process and remember this information. It's too much. It sounds stressful, right? And that's because it is. Now imagine that you're like Matt Haig and you already suffer from anxiety. Imagine going to the shopping centre with your girlfriend and how that could send you spiralling into a fit of anxiety. Now pair that with the added urge of checking your phone for notifications. When you're reading, you have all the information and decisions to click or not to click. Of course it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming for everyone. So Notes on a Nervous Planet really takes a down-to-earth look at this crazy 21st century world we live in and suggests ways that we can edit our lives to better care for ourselves, both mentally and physically. He says the two are connected anyway, as do a lot of other people. So I was reading this book after the Gary Vee book, um, 
the two, they may sound quite conflicting. Like Gary V's, like, you've got to be always on your phone, checking Twitter, dedicate hours a day to Twitter and, and Instagram and TikTok and Twitch and whatever else. Um, whereas Matt Hayes kind of like, you know, be, be wary of this. Be aware that there's all these demands on our, on our brain and on us. Um, and, and it's pulling apart society because, I mean, you go out and you see people sitting at bars, groups of friends, and they're all looking down at their phones. So they're two very different books, but the two, they kind of complement each other as well. Like both of them were kind of like embrace it, embrace it, but with caution, you need to have meaningful approach to how you use these new technologies. Gary V's case, it's for uh, setting up side businesses and making money. Uh, making money, becoming successful, let's say. Uh, whilst Matt Haig's, um, he's, I mean, he's his Twitter a lot. He's on Twitter a lot. Uh, he's talking more about like using it in a meaningful, meaningful way, and also remembering to disconnect. Uh, but he doesn't say like drop it completely. It's not none of them. Are, you know, he's not talking about deleting uh, social media accounts. So, uh, what kind of inspired me about this Matt Haig book is that he he wrote it for himself. And that kind of got me thinking, was like, if he can write a book for himself and people buy it and read it, and it's, it's become quite popular, why can't I create a podcast for myself? Maybe people listen to it. Maybe, you know, well, if you're here right now, then you are listening to it. Thank you. Um, but also, I think that trying to get some of this stuff out of my head, onto paper, uh, out of, into voice, you know, into the air, and share it a bit, could be both useful for me in terms of my mental clear out as well, and also kind of fun, you know? So here I am, uh, talking into a microphone to nobody in particular, because of two very different books for by two very different people. Similarly, uh, I don't think a side hustle is maybe too bad of an idea in this day and age, uh, especially with Boris Johnson's Tory government announcing last week that they want to increase the age of retirement by a whopping 10 years uh, to 75, which is frankly enough to send the, the hardiest of individuals into depressive and anxious state. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's give it a go. Um, I'm not entirely sure what Ian Duncan Smith was actually thinking when he decided that increasing the age of retirement by a whole decade was a good idea, both in terms of like the people that vote for him and just the general practicalities of being 70 and still working. Um, I mean, I don't know. And let's not forget as well, it's taking jobs away from younger people. I mean, I grew up with the understanding that you know, I, I was born in, in 1989. I remember probably in like 1995, 96, when I was seven, eight, watching like, uh, what was the TV show called? Tomorrow, Tomorrow's World. And like, they're talking about self-driven cars, uh, automated jobs, robots, like we see in Amazon. So, you know, this, these things are starting to exist. Um, but the general understanding was that we were going to be working less hours in a day and less days in a week. And for many, many yes, less years, just because like technology has sped up production and automated a large amount of it. And instead, I feel like we're all working more hours and for longer and for less. It's like, you know, technology is helping us and we need to keep up. You know, a lot of us have got email and stuff. I'm always connected on our phones, even when the workday is finished. And it just adds to the kind of the stresses and the anxieties that Matt Haig talks about in, in his book. Also, you know, this Ian Duncan Smith, Boris Johnson plan of working till you're 75, I just don't see how they can see it as sustainable. It's just beyond me. That people remain in jobs until they're 75, whilst 18-year-olds continue to enter the job market, which is just ever declining. There's some math here that really doesn't add up. 
personally, I think we need to embrace automation. And the more we can automate, the better. Uh, and then we need to find a way of just making sure everyone gets fed and has shelter and is comfortable in life. Because all of these things, you know, it's 2019. All these things are available to us uh, if we just have a bit more of a better redistribution of things. So that was kind of the big news in British politics last week, which makes a change from Brexit, it has to be said. Of course, in a bizarre twist, it was announced on the same day that Daniel Craig's final outing as James Bond would be in a film called No Time to Die, which, of course, the internet found hilarious because he would be working until he's 75. No Time to Die today, Bond. Ian Duncan Smith needs you to keep working forevermore. Uh, really, it was just British satirical comedy uh, at its best. I'm not really fussed about the film, uh, James Bond. I'm not even sure if I saw the last one. I, I was thinking about it. Is the last one the one with, with Adele? Was that the song? Um, I'm way behind uh, Bond films I was more interested in the rumours around who will be the next Bond as the prospects of Luther actor Idris Elba will be taking the role or that was just I could go get on board with that Uh, and the other rumours of course were Tom Hardy and like damn like if I had to choose one I don't think I could pick between them I think they both make very different but very brilliant Bonds Uh, I don't know maybe it's just time the Bond franchise took a break you know I don't know um, of course, that wasn't the only news in Hollywood. Uh, Bill and Ted 3 tweeted on August 21st, one year from today, dude, uh, which can only be interpreted as one thing, and that's the Bill and Ted movie will be hitting the big screens on Friday, 21st of August 2020. Uh, and I can just, all I can say about that is excellent. Um, Keanu Reeves, though, was in the news again. He's, turns out he's, he's busy, busy man. Uh, with an announcement that Matrix 4 would be hitting big screens in the distant future, with Lana Wachowski directing and writing. Uh, whilst Keanu will be back as the Chosen One, alongside Carrie Ann Moss returning as Trinity. It looks, though, like Lawrence Fishburne is too old to play Morpheus, as they're looking to replace him with a younger actor, which is quite a shame in my opinion. He was a badass Morpheus, and I'd have loved to have seen him reprise the role with a kind of more sagely, life-experienced, worn-type take. Um... Rumours are that production is set to start in 2020, but I have a feeling it could be one of those projects that's just drawn out for a long time before we actually see anything. Bringing such a big and important franchise back 20 years after the original film and 16 since Matrix Revolutions, it's just a big, bold step. And I'm sure both Wachowski and Warner Brothers and and Keanu Reeves are, are very, very keen to do right by the fans. Uh, we could talk about and speculate all day about the plot, but we know that it'll question reality. And if, you know, the sort of big questions that he threw up before, like, are we living in a simulation? And actually, this is something we see a lot more now. Uh, more and more people arguing that we are, like Elon Musk and uh, the likes. Um, so, I don't know, maybe it could raise some pretty big and relevant questions now. Uh, I, for one, am very excited at the prospect of another Matrix movie. Now, <sighs> I watched series one of Better Call Saul, and I think I watched a bit of series two, but I pretty much lost interest in it. And so I was pretty surprised (laughs) to see in the news the other day, uh, Bob Odenkirk talking about season five of Better Call Saul. So it must have a pretty solid fan base. Um, I seriously thought it had been cancelled, but apparently not. It's, it's still going on Netflix as well. Bigger news, however, was that that he well he claimed that Breaking Bad uh, creator Vince Gilligan is not only well not only shooting a Breaking Bad movie, but it's actually completed um, a free Breaking Bad movie. Uh, this must be one of the best kept secrets in Hollywood at the minute, or at least it was up until Bob Odenkirk, Odenkirk uh, spilt the beans. 
Uh, the prospect of a feature-length Breaking Bad film does all kinds of things to me. I can't wait. Uh, Odenkirk said, uh, I don't know what people know and don't know uh, when he was talking to The Hollywood Reporter. He says, I find it hard to believe you don't know it was shot. They did it. Uh, like, how is this a secret? But it is. I mean, how is it a damn secret up till now? Uh, like, they've not only gone into production, but they've shot it all. Like, it's amazing. Um, and, like, how's Reddit and Twitter not being ablaze with this? Like, some someone's been sitting on this very, very carefully and done a very good job at keeping it secret. Um, like, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I guess with all the other series, maybe on, like, Netflix and HBO, said, we've just forgotten how goddamn awesome Breaking Bad was. But, I mean, fuck... Like, imagine being the guy that gives that secret away. It's been so well hidden that nobody knew just for them Bob Odenkirk to talk to The Hollywood Reporter and blab about it when doing an interview about season five of Pair Call Saul, a series that I thought had been cancelled. <laughs> Damn. Uh, apparently, the Breaking Bad movie, well, in the time it took me to kind of like process all of this, that Netflix and Breaking Bad launched a damn trailer that say that the Breaking Bad movie called Al Camino will be out in, in November. And it looks from the trailer and from the kind of speculation that it'll be focusing on Jesse's life post-Walter White. Um, honestly, I hope, even like through some cheap and easy flashbacks or something, that we, we get a bit of, of Brian Cranston in there because I can't imagine a Breaking Bad movie without an appearance of, of Walter White um, Heisenberg. You know, he's got to be in it. Fingers crossed. We get some more news, another trailer, like, soon, because I'm just so damn excited about it. Roll on November. Oh, the Netflix news. Uh, well, BBC news, I guess. Uh, Peaky Blinders started in the UK last weekend. Uh, season 5, episode 1. Um, it's not here in, in Spain until it hits Netflix in October, I think. So I'm just going to brush over that. Like, please keep that a secret. <laughs> Don't spoil it for me. I'm so excited for that as well. Um, so other other TV news, the D23 Expo, the big, the big Disney convention where they announce a bunch of new stuff. Uh, they brought us a trailer of the long-awaited Mandalorian series, which is uh, focusing around uh, Boba Fett, I think it is. From the from the original trilogy, and honestly, it looks so good. Like the the trailer is amazing. Like there's a scene; it looks just so gritty and not Disney, you know, <laughs> and not even Lucas Arts. Like, like it's 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 a come of age, you know. The the series like it fits Netflix or it fits the 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 culture and the what we expect now from a series. Uh, there's a scene in the trailer where an alien gets trapped in one of those octagonal closing doors, uh, and it just looks like. Ah oh, man, it's just brutal. <laughs> um, it looks like it's going to be more live action and physical effects and CGI as well. Uh, so we're going to get to see some really cool stunts as well as more kind of SFX and makeup. Uh, in the trailer, there's a Twi'lek and amongst other familiar Star Wars species and characters. The sets look awesome. The action looks so hot. Everything looks great. The whole thing just looks just grittier than what we've come to expect from the Star Wars franchise, uh, even more than, than like Rogue One, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I, I love that film. Um, so I hope this is a new direction for the Star Wars fans who have grown up since the, the Ewok days and, and truly fucking hating Jar Jar Binks and, and all of that shit. So, you know, we need a change of direction. We need some gritty Star Wars stories because when you think about it, the Star Wars universe is so gritty. 
then when I thought things just really couldn't pick up anymore, there was another big announcement from LucasArts end of Disney. Ewan McGregor will reprise his role of Obi-Wan Kenobi for a freaking Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Like, man, Ewan McGregor's back as Obi-Wan. That's so cool. Apparently, it's going to fill the gap before the original trilogy. Uh, so after the trilogy we don't talk about, uh, <laughs> uh, where I guess Obi-Wan becomes old Ben or living on Tatooine, like, oh, man, Ewan McGregor in this role is just so cool. And I can't wait. Of course, both series will be broadcast, or should I say streamed, on Disney+, Plus, Disney's answer to Netflix, which honestly depresses me streaming and like more specifically netflix ushered in an era of of unity and on-demand viewing which we never had like before that we had kind of growing tv packages with hundreds and hundreds of channels that cost an absolute fucking fortune and what was once like a convergence of studios and production companies distributing original content to viewers via one on-demand platform has now become an utter omni-shambles of platforms each putting out like a flagship series and then just a whole bunch of filler meaning that you need Netflix for, like, Stranger Things and the upcoming Breaking Bad movie, uh, HBO for Westworld, Amazon Prime for, I don't know, Man in the High Castle, The Zone for sports. And now you're going to need, like, the Disney Plus platform and Warner Warner apparently bringing out a platform as well. Apple TV have also announced they're going to be producing original content for an upcoming Apple Plus platform, Apple TV Plus, I think it's called. Like, God damn it, guys. I thought we'd solve this. Uh, a recent New York Times article I read suggests that much like everything else in 2019, we're moving backwards towards the old TV model. We had to buy various packages and add-on packages, and just the cost of it all became rather depressing. Like, you've ruined a good thing, guys. Just consumerism's just fucked it again. Traditional media, as we know it, is also set for a revolution, as Joe Rogan recently interviewed 2020 presidential candidate Bernie Sanders on his show. Now, this is something of a left-field move, as Rogan has come under fire a lot recently for having a far-right fan base and and platforming far-right attitudes and stuff. Something that I think regular listeners to his show will is largely untrue. Like, I get it, and I've seen his fans, but I don't think I don't think he does promote right-wing attitudes. Um, Sanders, Bernie Sanders, relished at the opportunity, saying that he normally gets a maximum of twelve minutes to present everything he stands for, which which causes obviously very reductive presentations and and now gives those of us who don't live in the US or understand or follow that kind of campaigning a lot more context. It's clearly just an overblown episode of Politics Got Talent and just completely explains why we ended up with Donald Trump leading the free world. Uh, the interview was great. Joe asked plenty of down-to-earth questions, reflecting uh, the man of the people role, asking about socialism, healthcare, education, taxes, and of course, marijuana laws. And Sanders, in his replies, was very quick to explain both his personal beliefs and his political stance and intentions in an understandable and accessible way. Like, uh, it was really, e- it wasn't easy listening, but like, I think anyone could have listened to it and kind of got what he was saying. And that can only do Bernie Sanders favours in his election campaigning, surely. For me, one of Joe's best questions was, right, say you win the election, you become the president, what do you do? And this gave Sanders a chance to lay out really clearly his presidential intentions, what he can and can't do, and the effects it would have on the country. Like he said, 
I would love to do this, but it's just not possible. Or we, you know, we'd like to do this, and and to do it, we'd need everyone to rally round, and we need the favour of the house, and all all the things that I don't really understand about political the, the politics in in the US. But he explained it really clearly, and it was refreshing to hear a politician not only speaking in a, a down to earth, normal way, but also have a bold and curious interviewer asking questions that we want to hear. I can't help but think of the stupid journalist who asked Theresa May what the naughtiest thing she ever did was. I mean, Jesus Christ. It's also under these situations, these, you know, not rigorous debates or or staged interviews, but like a sit-down, extended chat. He was on for an hour. You really get to find out, like, what a person is like. And we found out what a real human being Bernie Sanders actually is, rather than some kind of socialist Stalin bot like he's painted to be. And it makes me wonder how other politicians would stand up to such a human experience. Like, it's almost extra pressure in that way to be normal, you know? I wasn't the only one who who was curious and and impressed. Uh, YouTuber Casey Neistat, he tweeted saying that he'd listened to the podcast and really liked it. And that he hoped Rogan would interview all of the 2020 presidential candidates. Like, this sounds like a fantastic idea. But more importantly... This changes the way that we do both the news and traditional media broadcasting. I mean, holy shit, a YouTuber taking to Twitter to say that a podcaster should be interviewing presidential candidates in a long-form interview. If if I were a news producer like CNN or NBC or even the BBC, I would be very, very worried. How do you compete with a YouTuber with a fan base of 2 million Twitter followers and a podcaster with Joe Joe Rogan's got 5 million Twitter followers? And between them, they've got 17 million subscribers on YouTube. Like, doing an in-depth and high-quality interview with a fucking presidential candidate, like, the news news channels just can't do that. Uh, And these guys are reaching real audiences. You know, Joe, like I say, Joe's got, like, 5 million uh, Twitter followers. He's got audiences. Um... And it's just a relevant and fresh format. And they're doing it for free. I mean, I paid nothing to listen to that podcast with Bernie Sanders. Okay, I had to skip about 10 minutes of sponsorship announcements, but I didn't pay anything, you know? Uh, the short-form vlogging and, and the independent podcasting formats that are like kind of longer and extended. And like Joe Rogan talks about it a lot. Uh, but they're really starting to come into their own. You know, they're not under studios. They can literally do and, and broadcast what they want. And it's beyond fun and games and cats now. And it's moving into effective storytelling and content that can have real world impact. Like, I think this has been going on for a while now. And people just, traditional media, it seems, just aren't paying attention. Like, and the news, news outlets, they need to hurry the fuck up or get left behind. Like some of them start, you know, they put in, all the news now has like a Twitter ticker on the bottom of the news. But that doesn't, you know, then they're not getting the format. They're not reaching the people in the same way. <sighs> Maybe we'll get Donald Trump on the Joe Rogan podcast. Like, let's see how he fares in a, a one to two hour one on one interview. Like, can he remain human or I don't know? Uh, it'd be interesting. It'd definitely be interesting to kind of get a bit of a feel for the guy behind the way he's reported on. He was, of course, Donald Trump in the news last week for his attempt to buy Greenland, of all things, and the ensuing tantrum that he had on Twitter when the Prime Minister of Denmark refused. The President of the United States began by talking about a real estate deal, trading US territory for Greenland. He then tweeted a picture of Trump Tower on a Greenland coastal town, and like the whole thing was just so cringy. The level of disconnect, that man, is truly baffling. And then when Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen 
called the offer absurd. Trump rebuked by calling her nasty and quickly cancelled a trip to the country. Probably much to the relief of the Danish people. Like, it's unbelievable. In 2019, the president of the free world, one of the biggest, or if not the biggest person in politics, uh, has a tantrum over something like this and cancels an official trip. It's not the first time, though, that United States have shown interest in Greenland, with former President Harry Truman allegedly making an offer of $100 million, too. The whole thing was a revelation for me, because I had no idea that, one, Greenland was up for sale, and that, two, Greenland was Danish. As it turns out, one, it's not for sale, <laughs> and two, Greenland is a... I looked it up, hang on. It's an autonomous constituent country within the Danish kingdom. Now, this is really interesting, because... Uh, like Greenland did a, I don't know what you call it, a green exit and left the European Union in 1985. Yeah, they left the European Union in 1985 after a 1982 referendum. And this was just three years after it gained autonomy in 1979. The main reason for leaving is was disagreements about the common fisheries policy and to regain control of Greenlandic fish resources. And now this is something that came up a lot with Boris and Nigel Farage when they were they were campaigning for Brexit. Regardless of this, though, um, and importantly, I guess, for pro-Remain or like me living in Barcelona uh, with Brexit going on, Greenland citizens, after they left the Union, they still retain their European Union citizenship because it's part of the Danish Empire. And of course, Denmark is is still in the European Union. And they also receive European Union funding for development projects. Apparently, there have been talks of them rejoining the Union. And if anything, it's made me very curious about Greenland. And perhaps made me want to go and visit. It looks beautiful. And as it stands, and before Brexit, I wouldn't have to get a visa. But the whole thing got me thinking, can countries be bought and sold? And who can buy them? A quick Google search proved rather fruitless. Apart from two large land purchases in US history, the first was July 4th, 1803, which may sound familiar to uh, anyone from America or anyone savvy on US history, but I had no idea. It turns out that a large portion of land in North America belonged to the French when Napoleon reclaimed it from the Spanish. Louisiana, uh, which basically runs down the centre of the country, from Montana and North Dakota, right down through to New Orleans at the southern border, passing through Nebraska, Colorado, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma. Uh, James Monroe and Robert B. Livingston negotiated on half of Thomas Jefferson with Napoleon. Like, again, my uh, my history hadn't, like, Thomas Jefferson and Napoleon at the same time, like, it didn't equate in my head. Um, anyway, they negotiated to to purchase the plot of land for around $18 per square mile, which uh, I think worked out about a total of $15 million, which is a, a rough equivalent of $300 million today, which, like, is frankly pocket money for Trump and, like, Jeff Bezos. Um, and then the states did it again some 64 years later. Uh, the, you know, President Andrew Johnson was in the property market, negotiating with Russian Emperor Alexander II, who also happened to be the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Finland, like a busy man. The Emperor come King come Grand Duke was something of a progressive, also known as Alexander the Liberator, after he freed the serfs and also promoted uh, elected judges, higher education and devolved governmental powers, as well as abolishing capital punishment. 
This is, of course, the Alaska Purchase, where President Johnson bought uh, 586,412 square miles, um, Alaska, for $7.2 million, an equivalent of $109 million today. So perhaps Trump was channeling Presidents Jefferson and Johnson when he thought he could make a purchase on Greenland. In fact, though, as recently as 2014, land has been sold from one nation to another, although this one is a tale of a more pressing issue. Kiribati President Anoti Tong arranged to buy 20 square kilometres of a Fiji island from the Church of England for a modest sum of $8.77 million in 2014. Sadly, though, this purchase was for the good of his people, as Kiribati looks set to be one of the first nations to be lost to climate change. The population of around 110,000 people, 110,000 people, uh, the population of around 110,000 people looks like it will be for the first to be uprooted as due to sea levels rising. The population of around 110,000 people looks like it will be the first to be uprooted due to sea levels rising. As they're just the country is just a series of atolls and low-lying islands. Um, they're not the only ones, as Maldives have also considered buying land in India or Sri Lanka. Perhaps, sadly, the future of land purchases will be reserved for climate refugees rather than Trump Towers. In sports, meanwhile, Chatri Sitiadong, CEO and chairman of One Championship, UFC's potentially biggest rival and my favourite fight association, has announced that he's pushing for mixed martial arts to be contested in the Olympic Games, stating that they'll be pushing for it to be incorporated into the 2028 Summer Olympics. Uh, because it will give the sport a global boost, as well as supporting gyms and grassroots competitions. In fact, he points out that all the elements of MMA are already in the Olympics. Boxing, taekwondo, karate, judo, wrestling. Obviously, the absence of Brazilian jiu-jitsu still persists in the Olympic Games, uh, sadly. So, MMA would be a good logical progression. I think it's a great idea, as MMA is still largely seen as an overly aggressive and dangerous sport, which I, I just don't think is true. In fact, it's often touted as safer than boxing because fighters can clinch and throw and change the, change the pace of the fights. And also we're seeing better refereeing now and associations starting to put the safety of their fighters first. Uh, this is something that one championship particularly cares about. They've prohibited weight cuts. They've opted to, to weigh their fighters in the weeks running up to the fight so they don't get this insane dehydration that we see in the UFC. Of course, MMA in the Olympics would mean that each country would have to field a team boosting the local level of competition, something which a lot of MMA and jiu-jitsu gyms would definitely welcome. England, of course, has a new star in the MMA scene as pro rugby player, DJ and fitness personality James Haskell has decided to branch out to MMA, signing with Bellator. Now, I don't know, this maybe isn't as extreme as when Freddie Flintoff went from cricket to boxing. Haskell's already pretty, pretty hench and he's got no qualms with getting physical as we've seen on the rugby pitch. Also, he, he's, a, he's got this professional athlete mentality and work ethic. And it looks like he's being supported by some of the sport's best and most winning coaches as he's training in London's Shoot Fighters gym. And he's a, apparently been linked to uh, British fighter Michael Page as well. Uh, I met Michael Page. He's massive. Like, his hands were the size of my head. Uh, <laughs> Haskell is, is slated to make his debut in 2020. So we'll see how he gets on next year. <sighs> Like I'm, I'm looking forward to it. He's a great guy. Uh, I follow him on Instagram. My my only concern about these kind of things is like celebrities who pivot into other sports. It's just that the success that they get with like little to no effort. 
Haskell's not yet stepped into an octagon, but he's already signed with a major pro, pro player. Whilst a lot of like pro and semi-pro athletes continue to perform in multiple bouts per year and never get such an opportunity. And especially with something like MMA and boxing, which is so physically demanding. And, and it's all about timing, you know? Like Haskell's, what, 30? In his 30s, early 30s, maybe? And... Like there's these guys that are, I don't know in the in the late twenties now that are fighting multiple times a year, you know, putting the health on the line and proving themselves as as potentially great fighters. And I don't know, it just it comes down to fame and money, doesn't it? And finally, the the British Grand Prix, which happened this weekend. Thank God the sun shone at Silverstone. Um, last year was just one of the longest days of my life, sitting in the office, just sitting watching Twitter, watching the rain fall on TV, hoping that something was going to happen. Um, yeah, this year it was nice. It was sunny. We had some, you know, the the height was good. There was some fast laps being put in. Uh, qualification was very tight. Um, I'm generally. I'm generally in the support anyone but Mark Marquez camp. Uh, the world champion is just too good. Like <laughs> he gets on pole when he wants, he gets in front when he wants. He just and right, we were treated to some really cool overtaking and some awesome racing. As he and fellow Spanish rider Alex Rins went toe to toe in the last rap laps of the race, it was it was thrilling. Uh, and and Rins like just got him on the last corner like he timed it to perfection it was so good it looks like the championship is all but wrapped up though as the only real contender Andrade Vizioso was taking out he was taking out the race uh, when it had barely begun lap one corner one when the young French Fabio Quartararo you know his first year racing a MotoGP bike at Silverstone clearly got carried away into the first damn turn crashed and took Vizioso with him so Mark's got like a good 80 point lead in the championship now um, I think technically he could wrap up the championship in in in, in Misano next week, or if not in Aragon. Uh, more realistically, it's probably going to be Thailand, but pff, you know, definitely by Japan, it's all going to be wrapped up, which is a shame. I wanted the championship to go down to the wire a bit more this year. Still, it was a thrilling race, um, down to the wire, and it was refreshing seeing someone like worthy like Alex Rins step up and take on Marquez and win. You know, this guy he took on Rossi in a final lap battle in Texas, and now he's doing it with Mark. Like, he's not been in it long. He's been in it okay. He's been in it long enough. He's been, in, you know, he had success in Moto Three, Moto Two. He's been in MotoGP for a few years now, but he's he's still kind of up and coming, and he's got two victories now. And so, like maybe next year we'll have a bit more of a fight. I, I really hope so. I really hope the likes of Alex Rins are there as well. It's not just... Like, this year it's just been Dovi and Marquez, which has been fine, but I, I just want a bit more from some other riders. And then, of course, I couldn't finish without mentioning the cricket. Like, if you follow British cricket, we won the World Cup. We're now in the Ashes Test Series, and the Test match last weekend was just thrilling. Like, I'd all but lost interest in, in, in it, as England were looking set for defeat despite the World Cup glory, but that was a week previous. Like, we, we should forgive them for that. But it was a kind of sporting drama that only Test cricket can give. You know, on the third and final day, England needed 290 runs or something, near on 300 runs, uh, and they managed it. It was just beautiful, so good. Ben Stokes is a national hero, undoubtedly. Of course, trying to explain this to all the Spaniards that I work with was just a lost cause. Um, let's just leave it as like a bizarre little little pleasure 
for a certain few nations and, and we'll leave the, you know, I don't know, there's football for the Spanish, which is about as much drama as an episode of The Big Bang Theory. Thanks very much for listening to episode one of The Last Palabra. Uh, feel free to subscribe or whatever, but more than anything, reach out. Uh, I'd love you to leave a comment or send me a message because I, I really want to know what you think and where we can take this. See you next week. Bye.